Hi, I'm Sam Rocky. Welcome to this episode in our Ghost Light series of podcasts where we explore how leaders can build human-shaped organizations by learning from the humanities, that repository of all that is most human. Each time we talk to guests who consider leadership from an angle rather than head-on, looking through the lens of philosophy, literature, art, history, psychology, for new insights, new language, and new approaches. In this episode, I'm talking to Robert Rodensmith, best-selling author, philosopher, and business advisor. Hi, Robert. Hi, Sam. Nice to be with you. Robert, it's wonderful to have you with us today. As a keen observer of human behavior, you must have some particular thoughts about what's happening during this pandemic and more broadly, the longer-term impact. Certainly, the way that we've organized ourselves as human beings in the past seems to be at stake during this COVID crisis. Are there any lessons that we can draw from how we've responded to the crisis that gives us hope? Well, yes, I think there there must be. Let's hope there are. I guess the first thing that's so apparent is the speed of response to what's gone on. So the speed of uh, arranging logistics, for example, the speed with which research has been conducted towards generating a, a vaccine, the speed with which manufacturers of personal protective equipment have come together and begun to produce things. There's a huge lesson there, isn't there? I think at least about alacrity and responsiveness. So that that would be the first thing. I guess there's another question, though, there about the degree to which speed is enabled or blocked by centralized processes. Because I think we've heard a lot about testing labs and so on being ready to contribute to a central effort, but a centralized effort not being able to client those sort of more independent operations. So there's a there's a lesson for us there about what model works best in terms of centralized or decentralized processes if you if you want to work fast. So that's the, that's the first thing I guess something about speed and organization. The second thing I think which is pretty extraordinary is the degree to which social compliance can be generated in times of emergency. I've been surprised by the very low levels of resistance to any kind of uh, to, to lockdowns and so on right across the world. I mean, we, we've seen signs of it in, in the United States. But I think that's another not necessarily heartening sign that it is possible to get a population so readily to comply with a set of rules, because we know that ability that human beings have to comply with edicts from authorities can also be very badly misused. But it is striking, you know, we do have the ability to comply for the sake of X. The question is whether that X is a good thing or a bad thing. But the the level of social compliance, I think, is pretty extraordinary. And of course, that will vary across the world. And with that, I suppose, a growing sense of perhaps a tolerance for surveillance. You know, up until, you know, this thing started, there was lots of concern about, you know, data harvesting. And that was the conversation. One of the major conversations was about, you know, data harvesting, data breaches, surveillance, and so on. Now that's really been flipped on its head, particularly through the South Korea example, where surveillance is actually seen as a kind of life-saving device out of this. So I think it really shifts the boundaries around that, that in fact, the contribution of data, of personal data to a national or global effort can be something which might have produced paranoia and suspicion until very recently, and now is almost seen as part of a collective effort. So I think there's a few things there. Yeah, one about speed, one about compliance, and one about surveillance and data, I think all three of those, the parameters around all three have been, have, have shifted, actually, mm. and told us about new ways of working, perhaps. And I guess, Robert, what you're really talking about is a huge 
first of all, experiment in terms of what people are prepared to do under these sorts of circumstances. And a collective experience, the like of which most people would not have experienced, certainly in their lifetime. I mean, what kind of impact does this have on a collective psyche? Yeah, that's a, such an interesting question, isn't it? Because again, if you think about the the discourse leading up to this, it was very much about the non-collective. It was about that you know deglobalization, the forces of nationalism, populism, uh, you know, which were kicking against the idea of a of a global collective at least. But now we've been forced, I think, to think a bit more collectively, despite the kind of conspicuously national rather than international, supranational responses to the crisis of ourselves as a collective, again, precisely because the virus, to use the cliche, knows no boundaries. It doesn't stop for a border check, you know, between Northern Ireland and the Ireland of Ireland, which is the other thing that used to obsess us. Mm. It's interesting the Irish backstop seems (laughs) (laughs) somewhat trivial compared with where we are now. But the other thing I think which creates that sense of the collective is um, something which in kind of modern philosophy is sometimes referred to as the hyper-object. And a hyper-object is something which is so big, so complex, so hard to compute that it takes us into a a state of stupefaction. Like we, we don't know how to deal with it. Now, before this virus struck, an example of hyper-object would have been the destruction of the natural environment. There are so many facets to it. It's so interconnected. It, there are so many variables. It's it's impossible really to think. I mean, you can only think about it in very mm. small small ways. COVID-19 seems to take that and multiply it in some way. So it's, in a certain sense, kind of quite literally unthinkable. It, I don't think it's really possible to think about it in any, certainly not in any holistic way. And that notion of the hyper-object, although it sounds very fashionable, sort of modern term, has its origins, I think, in the notion of the sublime, which goes back to ancient thought, became popular again in the Romantic era when Romantic poets were writing about experiences which it wasn't possible for human beings to process okay. at the time. So, I mean, Wordsworth, the poet, talks about the experience of being confronted with a mountain in the Lake District. This is one of the most famous examples of the sublime. And apart from being impossible to compute for the human mind, the sublime has two other aspects, which I think are both relevant to this virus. One is that it's terrifying. It creates terror. But the other is it creates beauty. Interesting. And I think this sort of coming together of the beautiful and the terrible are among many things that the coronavirus is doing. Now, we know in what ways it's terrible, of course, because it, it creates illness and death, all sorts of personal and collective trauma. But it's also released all sorts of beauty, as we know. I mean, the skies are quieter, we hear more birdsong, the air is fresher, mm. and so on. So um, I think, you know, that for us is a, we are having a collective experience of the sublime yeah, in some way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just love this idea that, you know, it's both incredibly positive, and there's so many stories, certainly in the leaders that we're working with, who talk about sort of fast-tracking innovation, getting things done, you know who's responsible for your digital strategy is no longer the CIO, it's now the COVID, because people have been pushed into sort of new ways of working, but of course, also the horror that goes alongside that. And one of the biggest challenges facing certainly leaders who are navigating this kind of incredibly difficult uh, moment are some of the ethical decisions that need to be made. The sort of really gritty, hard decisions, businesses, for example, who they have to furlough, who they don't, who they make redundant, who they don't. I mean, just in that decision-making process, you know, there's so much that needs to be added in. Um, medical staff have to make incredibly difficult decisions. 
you know, so so this idea of the kind of ethical underpinning of the sublime moments. Can you talk a little bit about what your perspective might be on how the ethical construct is playing itself out? Of course, a lot of those questions pre-existed this crisis. You know, people, doctors making choices about life support and where to direct resources or not. So in a certain sense, there aren't new ethical questions, I think, necessarily, but there are. they have become sharpened or brought more into focus at the moment. And of course, um, one of the kind of implicit questions being asked is around whether it's okay that older people die. Mm. I mean, if you were to flip this process around, I mean, just imagine that if actually this was a virus that attacked children rather than older people, that accelerated response that we were talking about at the beginning of this discussion would be all the more intense. I mean, it's almost unimaginable how the kind of rapidity, the fear, the alacrity with which people would respond if it were tipped the other way around, if it were attacking our children more than our, our older people. But I guess, you know, if you're asking this about from a leader's perspective, I, I think probably the key word in all of this is conscience. You know, whatever you do at the moment, are you acting in accordance with your conscience? And conscience is that little internal barometer that tells us whether we're doing something right or wrong at the time. And we kind of always know when we're acting in good conscience or not. So I, I think probably whatever decisions people in leadership positions are making at the moment, that is the guiding question. You know, would my, would my conscience support mm. this or not? Because in retrospect, you know, that's the thing at least that you can point to. You know, at the time, with the information I had, I think I did the right thing. Yeah. Even if in hindsight it all went, uh, it all appeared the other way around. I guess the other thing to show, I suppose, is just some humility, you know, in taking these decisions. And, some, you know, I don't know what the answer is, but on the balance of judgment, I'm going to go this way. And then thirdly, back to the transparency, I point is to kind of show the working. Why did you arrive yeah. at that, that decision? What were, what were the steps? Do you do you feel that certainly consumers will look at organisations that have made some decisions under duress because they've had to for a whole range of different reasons? Do you think consumers will have long memories around how people have dealt with this crisis? Or do you think we'll flip straight back into the way that we've always worked or shopped or consumed? Well, yeah, I think mud sticks, doesn't it? So those examples where organisations have attempted to profiteer will be remembered. And we've seen two or three examples of companies. If you remember very early on in the UK, Mike Ashley, the owner of Sports Direct, argued that tracky bottoms were sort of essential for life. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they, they are. They kind of are now. They've become increasingly, yeah. Uh, but we had a recent case, I think it was Victoria Beckham or something, following yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. And we've had Premier League Premier League clubs being in slightly dodgy ethical territory as well. And, and those, do th those things do get remembered, unfortunately. Uh, unfortunately for them, whether that will have an impact long term, I, I really don't know. If you take the example of Amazon, you know, we know Amazon's making a huge amount of money at the moment and already has a huge amount of money, is trying to demonstrate that it's doing good things sort of philanthropically at the margins. But the truth is, Amazon is now so wired into our system, yeah. as are the laptops we're using, that even if the reputations do become sullied, you can't sort of take the egg out of that particular omelette. You know, it's yeah. it's in it. I just don't see, at least sort of medium term, how that would ever really shift. And Robert, perhaps to just build on that a little bit, I mean, you are one of the most interesting commentators on power and 
the shifts in power and what drives power is certainly, I mean, as a result of this, are we going to see positive ways in which power may shift, both in terms of government, society, businesses? You know, do you see an upside from a power point of view, a redistribution of power, if you will? I mean, I think the first thing to say about power is that power is never fixed. You know, uh, it, it will always shift and shift again. That's why we call talk about dynamics of power. So whatever shifts there might be, I don't think will be permanent. Mm -hmm. and of course, it depends what time scale you put on that. I think what's interesting is that we were already seeing a shift in power from West to East broadly, or to put it even more crudely, from America to the United States. And we had a trade war as a preamble to all of this. And we're seeing both the Americans and the Chinese, to some extent, using the coronavirus outbreak to continue that, certainly ideological war or propaganda war. So for me, the question is going to be all around China, mm. both in terms of the managing of the reputation around this, the science around it, uh, and so on. And it's it's interesting for me to to learn about examples where China is now expressly helping out in places around the world, like Serbia and Africa, with their response to right. C-19. Because although you know we in the West clearly hear a lot of negative propaganda about China, there, you know, there are clearly two sides to that story. Mm. So in a way, I think the American response to China and this is, is a way of continuing that trade war and trying to put the brakes on what has felt for a long time like an inevitable shift towards the rise of China in the East. Yeah. But I think it is only putting the brakes on for now. I don't think it's going to stop it entirely. And of course, the other question will be the degree to which Americans blame the White House for the number of deaths and the way the, uh, the virus is being handled there. And Robert, just continuing the theme of power, I mean, the shift in society from acknowledging that it is the frontline workers who are almost more valuable than people leading organizations. I mean, do you think that that has a long tail? Do you think that we'll see a continuation in terms of valuing people who in the past have just sort of been the unseen kind of engine room? I think there will, but unfortunately, I think that will continue at the level of sentiment rather than at the level of real change. Because I think as far as we're seeing, and I hate to be so sort of down on this, but as far as I can tell, the virus, at least so far, seems to be concentrating inequalities rather mm. than leveling things up, mm. actually. And if we think about, you know, these rituals, the clap for carers and so on, well, that's a beautiful thing, and one of the beautiful things that the virus has brought along. But, you know, I do worry whether sometimes that kind of pathos and sentiment is a displacement for something more important, because at the same time, we've known that a lot of people in the NHS aren't getting the support they need, either, you know, the practical support they need. So I don't see a huge cause for optimism in this. I see it actually as, a, as an intensifier of capitalism, if I'm completely okay. honest about it at this point. You know, you read in the media, there seems to be such a kind of shifting conversation that has sort of small pockets of hope around how people have responded to this. But from what I'm hearing you say is that actually things might bounce back in even a more uh, stark way than before. What can we learn from the way that philosophers think about uncertainty? Because I think no one really can predict the future. We don't really know how it's going to play itself out. But as a philosopher, how would you think about it? How would you help our listeners think about this uncertainty that we're facing? I think the first thing to say is that uncertainty has been a theme in philosophy right from the beginning. And there's been sort of two views of the world, one that the world is predictable and one that it's not predictable. Yeah. Uh, you know, and those traditions have 
yeah, gone back right back to Athens and and the the sort of main philosophical response to uncertainty is stoicism or things like that, which mm-hmm. suggests actually we can't predict what's happening outside, but we can control what's happening inside. In other words, we can control our minds, we can control what we think about, we can control our ethical structures and so on. Uncertainty, I think, is only a problem if you don't have inner resources that can allow for it or kind of budget for it, if you like. I heard a good definition of stress recently, which is stress is what arises when the world fails to comply with our expectations of it. But if your expectations are not very set, then you're not going to get very stressed. Yeah. So so you can kind of go with the flow. The other thing I think, so there's a German philosopher called Immanuel Kant, who was writing at the beginning of the 19th century and late 18th century. And there's a little bit uh, of a text by him, which I've always been fascinated by, where he's talking about metaphors. He says that metaphors don't provide any truth because they're just an approximation, but they can help us to think. So they provide understanding mm-hmm. rather than knowledge. And I've been thinking about this in relation to the virus being described with metaphors of uh, warfare, so that the virus is an enemy or an invisible en- enemy. We have to do battle with it. We you know, have to have strategies to defeat it and so on. And those metaphors may help us to think about it, but I think actually those are the wrong metaphors for this virus because it seems to me if it can be compared to anything, it's not to an enemy but to a mirror. And that seems to me the most fundamental characteristic of this virus. It is reflecting back to us who we are and the choices that we've made that have led up to it. So, for example, Hubei province, where this originated, Hubei used to be – and this is – um, so this is very superficial kind of Wikipedia knowledge that I'm regurgitating here. But as as I understand it, Hubei province, and, and incidentally, Hubei, the word Hubei has, uh, means something to do with the beauty of rivers or so on. Uh, one of the central places where Mao Zedong in the 1950s focused his desire to industrialize China. And so a lot of those rivers were effectively covered over, paddy fields covered up, factories put in place, and so on. So we, you know, it's one of the first places in China, at least, that industrialization really took hold and nature was mm. suppressed, if you like, in the name of the Cultural Revolution and the advancement of China. And again, I keep coming back to China because I think it's so fundamental in all of this. But in a way, you could say that, you know, the origin of the virus starts then. Yeah. You know, it starts in the 1950s. So we're being, I think, confronted with cause and effect in a very direct way you know, or the consequences of our behavior just on that since uh, you know i've been thinking about how people's belief systems might have shifted you know one of the classic questions in philosophy is how can there be a god if there's evil in the world or you know you might rephrase that today to say you know how can there be a god if there's coronavirus in the world you know surely if there's a god he would have she would have intervened against it or not let it happen at all but actually if you look at it as a mirror then you can say well God wants us to see the consequences of our actions, because if he doesn't, if we don't, then we are being treated like children. Mm. There's no free will. There's no agency. Everything is taken out of our hands. So there are bad things in the world precisely in order to show us the consequences of our actions so that we can learn and develop and, and so on. So for me, I think those things can be, maybe it's too clever an argument, but I, I think those things can be um, reconciled in a way. There can be a God and coronavirus, mm. because coronavirus is about choices and consequences, mm. if nothing else. And in fact, what it urges us to do then is to make sure that whatever we do as a result of this has a positive trajectory and is about 
disintermediating actually the, these negative consequences that we're experiencing. Yeah, exactly. And to think about, so, you know, we've all been in lockdown in order to prevent the spread of the virus. You know, that's great. But one of the consequences has been people aren't going to hospitals, so there are more deaths yeah. from cancer. You know, so you can set up a decision-making process, but it has to be thought through, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. one has to be very, very thoughtful. Um, Dave Snowden, who, as you know, is a complexity thinker, talks about the fact that this is a real moment of catastrophe that requires us to actually shift into new ways of behaving and working and thinking about the future. And it's our responsibility. He doesn't use the word mirroring of the, of the virus, but he certainly has this idea that something's been put in place which requires us to behave differently. It's a compelling argument, I think. It is. And I think it probably at its most philosophical or existential, it, it really, I think, asks us to question the value of life, overpopulation, mm -hmm. whether we do want this many people on the planet or not, whether it is okay for older people to die or not, whether we want to continue to reproduce or not, and all of those questions. Why we value life so highly? You know, is that appropriate? It's not, it's not always been the case. And mm -hmm. uh, different societies have valued it in different ways. Secular societies tend to value it more because they think that's all there is. I mean, these are, you know, they're, they're quite profound questions, I think, um, which are worth thinking about. Yeah, probably a, a question. I'm not sure that there's a ready answer, but I mean, thought experiments are much beloved by philosophers. And to sort of leave us on a, on a rather more cheery note, I wonder, what would you ask leaders to engage with at this very particular moment? If you had to encourage leaders to set a thought experiment for themselves, what would it be? How can we be as smart as the virus? How can we be as smart as the virus? Yeah. If we could be as successful as the virus, what would we have to do? Okay, great. Because if you use that as the guide to a commercial strategy, you know, it would, obviously it would, be, it would go viral. <laughs> You'd be able to work across boundaries. Yeah. You'd be able to change behavior completely to your end. You'd be able to defeat most competition. And you'd be able to certainly at least defer your own demise for months, if not years. Huh. So if you were to base your business strategy on the strategy of the virus in its apparent success at reproducing, surviving, and even potentially adapting, yeah. what would you do differently? Gosh, that is that is food for thought and an unexpected uh, turn of events. Thank you very much. Robert, any last thoughts about what you're noticing at the moment that is of particular interest that you can leave us with? You get on Zoom calls or phone calls every day. People ask how you are. I always find that a very hard question to answer because in the course of a given day, I'll run the entire emoji <laughs> board, you know, every single one. Absolutely. But I think the two dominant emotions of the day to me appear to be fear and love essentially, you know, the two dominant emotions. Fear, because obviously the virus, standing in the supermarket queue, the fear of being infected, the fear for our financial futures and all of that. But love too, because we are being connected with people, family and friends. We are hearing these wonderful stories about, you know, old army captains walking around the garden, about carers and so on. It feels to me that never before have those two, well, I'd say never before. It feels to me that at the moment, those two emotions, like sort of two gods or something, have become the most pronounced emotions there are in the world at the moment. And that's, I say that partly because those two are traditionally opposed to one another, that, you know, love is the only thing to beat fear. And I think probably as we come out of this, assuming we do come out of it in that linear way, which I don't think is going to be the case, but assuming we do, 
And without wanting to be too schmaltzy about it, I do think that we have to come out favoring love rather than fear in our responses. Absolutely. I mean, I think that that's a fantastic way to end this podcast. And certainly this idea of recognizing and remembering the moments where we've had that real feeling of love towards people in the community, people who are making such a huge effort to get this under control, people who are every day doing amazing things. I think if we can hold on to those feelings of real love that we've all had, that would be, you know, really bode well for the future. Robert, it's been lovely talking to you. We'll obviously direct people to your website because I know you have so many interesting thoughts. You're a prolific writer on a whole range of very interesting topics and absolutely appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Nice talking to you. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Thompson Harrison's podcast, Ghost Lights, where we interview Oxford academics, leadership practitioners, and business experts about what it means to be human in a fast-moving, complex environment. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.